This episode is sponsored by Marvel Strike Force. If you're looking for a superhero-themed mobile game, look no further. Marvel Strike Force is a mobile squad RPG that allows you to battle with your favorite team of superheroes and supervillains in a fight to save the universe against threats like Doctor Doom and Apocalypse. Your goal is to power up your favorite characters to complete missions, unlock gear and other resources, and beat other players in PvP modes like Alliance War and Real-Time Arena. The game is currently celebrating its 6 year anniversary, and they're letting new users in on the celebration by providing free stuff, courtesy of our unique link in the show notes. The anniversary consists of weekly events and bonuses, and if you complete each event, you can receive special rewards and skins. Make sure to log in each day and each week to take advantage of all of the new characters that are being released specifically for this event. This will be Marvel Strike Force's most generous event to date, so don't miss out. We've received a unique promo code, so new users can follow our link in the description and use the promo code MAXPOOL. That's M-A-X-P-O-O-L. Thanks to Marvel Strike Force for sponsoring this episode. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If you had an extra hour in your day, what's the first thing you would do? Get outside more? Check in on that friend you've been meaning to catch up with? Maybe learn how to play an instrument? I know I've thought about what I would do with more time in my day, and many people daydream about what they might do in that scenario. The best way to squeeze that special thing into your actual schedule is to know what's important to you and take whatever reasonable steps you can to make those things more of a priority. Therapy can help you find what matters to you, so you can do more of it. Therapy is not just for people who've experienced major traumas. It's helpful for learning positive coping skills, how to set boundaries, and it empowers you to be the best version of yourself. If you're thinking about giving therapy a try, check out BetterHelp. It's fully online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a quick questionnaire that will match you up with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash FilmDaily today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash FilmDaily. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Slash Film Daily for Wednesday, March 15th, 2023. I am Bradford Omen, a.k.a. Ethan Anderton, uh, and normally you don't hear me doing this, but Peter Serretta is gone for this week. Uh, but we weren't going to let that stop us from doing our usual Mandalorian recap, review, uh, speculation, all that good stuff. Uh, so I'm here to talk about the new episode of The Mandalorian with our reliable Star Wars expert, Brian Young. How you doing? Hey, that, that's me. <laughs> welcome uh we're we're without peter but because we uh we've been doing this for a while and you are uh the big chief star wars guy uh, i think i think we can pull this off yeah no i think we can do it i will miss peter greatly but i'm sure he's having a fabulous time somewhere exactly uh and we'll we'll try to fill the void of all the uh the the questions that he asked so we can get all the information out of you that we need and uh, let's just get right into it, and we'll start off by uh, going through feedback from our last episode after the uh, the second episode of season three. What what did we hear from the people? Um, so the first thing we got was an email from Eric, and Eric writes, This week you guys drew the parallels to the Lord of the Rings and the Mines of Moria, but I'm surprised you didn't mention this. In episode two, the way Mando got captured by that giant mech spider felt so similar to the way Frodo got captured by Shelob, even a moment where it looked like he was stung and paralyzed and rendered helpless. And uh, yeah, Mia culpa. I feel I feel awful about this one because I even had that in my notes for my review and I forgot to put it in my review too. 
Yeah, as soon as Peter sent us this this feedback email, I was like, "Ugh, oh, yeah, we're we're idiots for not mentioning this. That make that makes perfect sense." Yeah, um, and it's it's another really great tie in, and and uh, it shows, I think, that influence of Lord of the Rings, and I think it shows an influence of Dave Filoni, who's a big Lord of the Rings fan, uh, pretty pretty up front and center there. Yeah, absolutely. So the next email is from Matthew and Matthew writes, uh, thanks again for another great podcast discussion of the Mandalorian. It was mentioned on the podcast that there could be a conflict between Bo-Katan and the Armorer. I think any conflict between the two of them will be because of Darth Maul, as it is likely that uh, uh, from the bumps on her helmet, the Armorer at one point followed Maul. If so, then she likely dislikes that Bo-Katan led the forces that took him down, just as Bo-Katan is likely to get very upset at anyone who once followed Darth Maul as he killed her sister. Put these two together, and I don't think it would take much to set them off on each other. It could also be used to build out the backstory of the Mandalorians, as either the Armorer or Bo-Katan would have to explain the bad blood between the two of them to Din Djarin, which in turn would be explaining to the audience. On a different topic, something that I don't think many are talking about is that the second episode of the third season of The Mandalorian was greatly influenced by the lone wolf and cub story Tragic Osue. Uh, I think I think that's... Uh, or Osu, I don't know. In the manga, the lone wolf and uh, Ogami Ito gets very sick and is bedridden, which results in his son, Daigoro, having a small adventure on his own. Now, the interesting thing that is worth mentioning is that Last of Us Episode 8 also pulls from this exact same lone wolf and cub story. I won't get into spoilers if you haven't watched The Last of Us, but it pulls even more story beats directly from the manga than The Mandalorian does, with there being a lot more similarities with what Daigoro and Ellis do. Uh, uh, yeah, that's an interesting uh, thing to point out. The first, the first part, I'm not necessarily convinced about and i i think we kind of have at least a temporary answer to whether or not there will be some conflict between them uh only because things uh, are okay with them right now but we'll we'll get to those details later on once we uh talk about the details of this the third episode um that second part you know i mean the influences of lone wolf and cub i think have been pretty prominent throughout the entirety of the mandalorian but that's also not something i think that is exclusive to lone wolf and cub because there are a lot of uh, classic Western stories too that have have also used that that same kind of formula where you know the the hero that we're used to watching you know is is hurt or injured or sick and that leaves their you know young companion or sidekick to have to go out on an adventure on their own. And that's essentially the the formula for every episode of Lassie. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. <laughs> um, so. <laughs> Uh, uh, the next email we got was from uh, Ken in Dublin, and he wrote, uh, just finished listening to your recap of episode two, and I think you missed a big talking point, the wielding of the Black Saber, especially after listening to the interviews with Filoni and Favreau about the, the, the Dark Saber and Lightsabers in general. You see Din struggling with it when he's fighting the Alamites, but how easy Bo finds it when the when uh, fighting the general grievous looking one eyed robot. What do you think this means going forward? You'll be glad to hear I've started my Star Wars reading with Light of the Jedi. Thanks again, Ken. Um, I think I feel like we did talk about about something along those lines about how it does seem a lot easier for Bo-Katan to dispatch anybody with the dark saber than Paz Vizla had or even Din Djarin had using that saber. Yeah, Din is definitely still like waving it around like a klutz and it looks heavy and feels heavy for him because he's not fully, 
you know, in, invested in, uh, you know, wielding that weapon or, you know, necessarily what he would need to do as the leader who is, you know, quote unquote, worthy uh, of wielding it. But meanwhile, Bo-Katan has a completely different mindset. Uh, and she, you know, she has experience with with that weapon. And so it would make sense that she is more skilled at at using it. Um, but yeah, I mean, it'll be interesting to see how how that uh, plays out. Um, and there's obviously that's going to be probably a big, uh, you know, moment that comes around later this season. Oh, no doubt. No doubt. So uh, it's usually at this point of the episode where we go into brief recaps before we do the, you know, the beat by beat analysis. So what's your your quick reaction, Brad? This was a great episode. Um, I think what I appreciated about the most is it gave us the kind of stuff that we love to see from Adventures with Mandalorian uh, and Grogu. It uh, it resolves some things a lot faster than I was anticipating. But then you have this huge middle part that really felt like it was uh, had a tone that was similar to to Andor and dug into a completely different side of Star Wars that we hadn't really seen before. I, I actually thought I felt a little bit more like a Star Trek episode with Star Wars bookends rather than a full-on episode of The Mandalorian, just the way they spent so much time with Dr. Pershing, uh, bringing back a supporting character that didn't really seem like had like a uh, a huge part to play in, in the, the rest of the series, but is now obviously an integral um, piece of what will happen with the plot moving forward. So it was um, a little more quiet than I was anticipating. I think having those bookends definitely helped, uh, but I, I feel like it was maybe a little jarring for some fans because it did do something completely different and maybe something unexpected that they weren't, uh, you know, looking forward to, but I hope that they appreciate once the episode is, is over, especially since this feels like it sets up what's going to be a big plot for the rest of the season. Yeah. I can definitely see where this episode might not be everyone's particular cup of pog soup. Um, but I really, I, I wonder if the same people who were, who, have been very vocal about not liking that on the book of Boba Fett, we got a side adventure with the Mandalorian that we, they, they might be complaining that on the Mandalorian, we're getting a side adventure with Dr. Pershing. Um, but both of those stories were integral sort of moving forward. I really enjoyed this episode. It filled in a lot of blanks and it ties to so much star Wars lore. It's absurd. Um, and it just it shows us this different view of the galaxy post empire than we've seen before and fills in so many blanks and offers so many tantalizing questions that i'm not i'm not sure i'm able to do a um a a competent view of what this episode accomplishes and how well it accomplishes it until after the season's over because it feels like it does a lot of table setting but it was a really enjoyable ride there it 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 had moments of like noir and thrilling action um and it also advanced all of the storylines so it it worked really well for me even for me even though it's so off the wall compared to what we're used to on this show yeah but i i think if anything we're we're probably more excited to see i think the star wars formula and the more specifically the mandalorian formula shaken up a little bit especially because of how good Andor was and how much different that was from anything we've ever seen in Star Wars before so to have an episode like this in the middle of a show that um has a pretty solid you know tradition of an adventure of the week with an overarching serial plot that is tied into it this was a uh, a surprise as far as like the the narrative developments for 
uh, our characters and also seeing such a big chunk of the episode dedicated to characters who uh, were only, you know, minorly important before. Yeah. So why don't we jump into the the beat by beat and and usually Peter will stop and ask questions and I'll try to do that or or go on tangents where it makes sense. But uh, feel free to interrupt me wherever you want to, Brad. For sure. Yeah. And feel free, you know, even even if I don't prompt it with a question to go on a tangent, if you feel it's important, because there's there's a lot of cool details here that I think will uh, require some Star Wars lore background that people might not be aware of. Yeah. So this episode starts exactly where the last episode left off um din jaren is still unconscious from his hilarious walk into the living waters of mandalore and bo katan is sort of stunned uh for an episode where she doesn't take her helmet off i'm so i'm really impressed by how they communicate her emotions and what she's thinking through that helmet every bit as well as they have with the actors in the mandalorian suit and uh matched with pedro pascal's voice um, but she looks clearly sort of gobsmacked by what she's just seen. Um, and the two of them have a conversation and she sort of asks, you know, did you see anything, uh, you know, living in the water? And he's like, nope. She's like, okay, cool. <laughs> and, and I couldn't tell, and, and I'm really interested in your read on this, Brad, and I'm sure that whatever our read is is on it it'll be the opposite for peter because that that tends to be how it works <laughs> um i i was torn between her being in disbelief like she didn't believe it and maybe she's asking him to check in to see if she's crazy or she's purposely obscuring the information from him i thought she was purposely obscuring the information from him uh, but I also don't necessarily know what benefit that is to her right now. So I don't, um, I don't know what her motivations are for for lying about it, for for not mentioning it to him or anything like that. But it did seem like uh, she she didn't think she was seeing things. She definitely saw the mythosaur, and she wanted to to know whether or not Din actually saw it as well. And for some for some reason, she's she was making sure that he didn't, and she's not going to bring it up. Yeah, I mean, it felt like it could be the other way, too. Like, why would she, she is someone who does not believe in any of this stuff? And she would be well versed in all of the myths of the mythosaur. And so that was kind of what led me to believe that maybe it was uh, a tinge of disbelief, right? Like, there's no way. There's no way that was really like, maybe I was seeing things. Who knows? Who knows? But what, so I, if she so but if she if she is, uh, you know, being deceptive about it, do you have any guesses as to like how that would benefit her or why she would do that? Well, I we might want to save that for the speculation, because I That's think fair. there's a That's lot. Fair. There's a lot that Bo-Katan goes through in this episode, even though she's only in like three scenes um, yeah. that have a lot of hints for her future trajectory. OK, cool. We'll talk about that later then. So Din and Bo-Katan make it back to her ship and they start heading to Kalevala where she has her castle. And uh, suddenly a squadron, an entire squadron of Thai interceptors appears behind them. Who they are, Din asks her and, and she sort of shrugs and says, I've scugged off a lot of Imperial warlords. So who knows who it could be? Um, but these interceptors are a little bit more than they can handle. And so Din 
says, you know, get me to my N1 and I can help back you up. But in the meantime, he goes to the back of her ship and starts uh, giving them some room and shooting at them. TIE Interceptors are a little bit uh, scarier than TIE Fighters. When four TIE Fighters, uh, you know, chased the the Millennium Falcon off of the Death Star, it's almost hilarious how weak of a force that was because TIE Fighters don't have shields or hyperdrives or anything. It was very clearly like Princess Leia was right. Like this is clearly a ruse. But here, TIE Interceptors, it looked like there were there were four or six of them chasing them. And TIE Interceptors have hyperdrives, and TIE Interceptors have shields, so they're much nastier foes than the average TIE Fighter. So they get down to Kalevala. She flies by her castle, forcing Din to jump out of the back of her ship to land on the landing pad using his jetpack, and he gets into his... Uh, and one just before one of the tie interceptors blows up that that spot on the landing pad. And I was had, a little, I, I was a little surprised that he didn't uh, land in quite so cool or smooth of a way that he stumbled and tripped as he as he landed. <laughs> I think that's part of Din's charm. It's the same reason that makes his fighting style so fun to watch, right? Like, there's nothing overly graceful about it the way yeah. it is for Bo-Katan, and I think that's just a character thing. So. So the N1 takes off and there's this moment. I don't know if it's smacked of this for you, but when he flies straight up into the air with the interceptor following him and then stalls out in the exact center of the screen, it reminded me of that moment in Tim Burton's Batman 1989 with the Batwing uh, framed by the moon. Yeah, 100 percent. That's one of my one of my favorite shots uh, in blockbuster movies is because it uh, gives us a cool version of the the bad signal with the bat wing and the, the exact way he falls, the, the 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 angle on the ship and everything. It was yeah, it was exactly like that's exactly what I thought of. OK, I'm glad I wasn't like sometimes I'll go like, oh, it's just like this movie. And I've done this before. I'm like, oh, it looks like you're taking inspiration from here. And and one of the, you know, Filoni or whoever would be like, nope, that wasn't on our mind, but uh, I'm glad there's some similarities there. Um, but this one, I'm glad it, it it felt as obvious to you as it did to me. So as Din and Bo-Katan race through uh, the chasms of the area, uh, they take out all of the TIE interceptors and they work really well as a team in the sequence that feels like it, it draws some inspiration from the asteroid chase and the empire strikes back, except for, uh, you know, on the surface of a planet and with water beneath them. Um, and then they start heading back to, uh, you know, Bo-Katan's, castle where she says you know i i somehow don't think you're going to take your helmet off otherwise i'd offer to invite you to a feast but that's when there's some problems you see there's a number of thai bombers destroying her castle in in shots that look very reminiscent to the same shots of moff gideon in those flashbacks of the night of a thousand tears when they destroyed mandalore yeah for sure and uh, she gets very angry about this and refers to those mud scuffers, you know, bombing her her home, which feels and... like the Star Wars version of motherfuckers. <laughs> yeah, no, there is no question there. Um, she starts going after them and just blowing them out of the sky one by one. But Din sees a whole host of new 
uh, blips appearing on his scope and realized that there is more than a couple squadrons of TIE interceptors out there, and the two of them are simply outmatched. And he convinces convinces Bo-Katan to retreat, and he sends her coordinates to somewhere safe, and they jump to hyperspace. Cut to the convert, chapter 19 of The Mandalorian. Now, Peter usually asks me this, but I'm going to ask you this, Brad. Like, what levels uh, is the the convert title working on? Uh, well, I hope that I can actually fill your role in this and provide uh, an adequate answer that meets the title on a number of different levels. Uh, because I think that the convert uh, not only applies to Dr. Pershing uh, being turned over to the New Republic from working for the Empire um, and the Imperial Army and doing his research and stuff to help them, Um I think it also refers to, um, to the deception that uh, Aliyah Kane is pulling off because she's making it seem like she has also converted from uh, being an Imperial to working with the New Republic. But then uh, at the same time, she also is, you know, technically a convert back to the Empire because she's a double agent and not uh, actually working uh, for the New Republic in a way that is uh, meant to help them. But then also, uh, once we get to the end, we have Bo-Katan, who is technically a convert, because even though she fell away from uh, what the Din Djarin sect of Mandalorians believe in, she has now been brought back into their fold because she cleansed herself in the living waters, uh, and she hasn't taken her helmet off yet, so now she is one of them again. I couldn't have done that better myself. Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I mean, that's that's exactly if Peter would have asked me, that's exactly what I would have said. I think I think you've hit the nail on the head there. Uh, so we cut then to Coruscant and some grand jaunty music uh, that is not very it, it, it's it's different music than we've heard. Ludwig Goranson's work is is sort of relegated to the Mandalorian pieces. And this feels a little bit more John Williams having fun. And uh, we see a shot of a scene uh, of a, a location on Coruscant that we'd only seen once before. And this is the opera house from Revenge of the Sith, where uh, Anakin Skywalker is walking up the red carpet the same way we see Elia Kane doing so, although it's not revealed to be her yet. As Dr. Pershing is giving a speech where the uh, Mon Calmari uh, were giving an opera when Anakin Skywalker came to talk to Palpatine about Darth Plagueis the Wise and the midi-chlorians. So uh, we have this, this character who we don't see in a very imperial-looking uniform with a brand new symbol on it that we learn is the Imperial Amnesty Program symbol. And uh, she's walking up the red carpet late for this speech of Dr. Pershing's, and Dr. Pershing is there uh waxing philosophical about his work that he did for the empire prior to his joining the amnesty program as well and he talks about how the kaminoans were able to perfect cloning at pure genetic replication but that his research was taking the best traits of two separate uh donor uh genetic donors and you know, basically doing the genetic engineering to to give them all the best traits of everything. And he talks about how that that uh, science, there's there's definitely some some murky water and evil that the empire wanted to use that for, but he wanted to use it for good. And he explains the story of how his mother 
had died too young and on the planet that he grew up on they didn't have any cloning technology and if they would have been able to clone and replicate her heart they would have been re- be, they would have been able to replace it and save her life and she'd have been alive today had the war not killed her uh because of that and he's doing his best to make up for the crimes that he committed as an imperial and really just wants to help save the world because that's his primary motivation that that got him in through this um and there's a really interesting scene afterward where he's sort of walking outside of the the opera house uh or the 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 vestibule outside of the actual um venue and there's all these rich people and Amon Kalmari sort of talking to him about how great he's doing. And I found it really interesting that these rich people were like, Oh, I almost got drafted. Could you imagine me in the outer rim? And they're like, Hey, we just didn't want to get involved. That was the empire, but I guess it's the new Republic now. And, and yeah, and there's really... the, the one, the one woman, she's like, isn't it so nice to be working for the new Republic now? And then you all, you have the other rich guy. They're like, they're like, Oh, the empire, the new Republic, you know, who can tell the difference these days? And it's like, all oh, these fucking rich people are so comfortable. They, they don't have to worry about any of the actual problems that come from whoever is leading the government. <laughs> Yeah, it, it's interesting um, that you have this strata of people that we didn't get to see a lot of. Like in Andor, it's all these people who are like, we're poor, we hate this, and we're definitely getting involved. And seeing the reformed Imperials paraded against these rich people who like can't even tell the difference between the governments because they're so rich yeah, is super fascinating. And this, uh, I don't know if we've specifically mentioned this before, but th- this is... Um, the the speech that Dr. Pershing gives it's like a definitely a a reference to real world things and and there's other um, details that will come around later on uh, all of them tied to World War II uh, because some of what Dr. Pershing is talking about at least as far as what the Empire wanted from his him is the same thing as uh, eugenics which is what you know was being pushed forth by the Nazis back then of trying to create a more perfect population without the flaws of uh, you know, groups that have been marginalized and what they viewed as as being flaws in in people who they didn't deem uh, as perfect. But it does seem like Dr. Pershing has more uh, genuinely noble hopes for that kind of research. Um, although I think that his area of research and the idea of cloning does call into question still some of the ethics with concern because even if he did want to, uh, you know, come from a place of saving his mother and having a heart um that they were able to to clone to save her wouldn't that you know require creating a clone and taking the heart out of that person thereby removing the life of that clone and then you get into the the area of you know if if you know are clones real people and you know do clones have a have a soul if that's something that you you believe in that kind of thing so that even though pershing does have these more um you know uh noble uh pursuits in mind there's still some you know morally gray areas there that are would be worth discussing yeah, absolutely. Um, I think the subject of cloning in, uh, you know, Star Wars was largely glossed over by George Lucas. I mean, granted, that was not the story he was telling, right? Like, yeah, George Lucas was not making Attack of the Clones in order to comment on cloning. He was raising the ideas so that Clone Wars or other places could... um you know, fill in those gaps. Um, the, it, it, 
the other thing like on to your world war ii point though is that there are tons of scientists that worked for the nazis and then afterward got pardons under the condition that they would come over to the u.s and work for the u.s um and and they would build their research on that nazi science and stuff yeah and and there's there's definitely touches of that throughout the rest of this episode for sure yeah and there were i mean there were definitely like if you look at some of the stuff that led to the atomic bomb like there were definitely scientists that sort of worked on both sides of that equation um one thing that i think is that might be worth pointing out now as well as we get through coruscant and we see all of these moments on coruscant um it is interesting um that I, I hope people don't expect to see like you said this is very much like an episode of Andor. I hope they don't expect to see some of the politics like with Mon Mothma. And that's because at this point in the timeline, the capital of the Republic or the New Republic is actually over on Chandrilla, her home planet. Uh it it never became again, Coruscant after the war never became again the capital of the galaxy. Right. Um which is why we ended up getting Hosni and Prime in The Force Awakens and stuff, but it started as Chandrila. Um, after this uh, discussion with these folks and after his speech, uh, Dr. Pershing gets in an air taxi, like we've seen in in uh, Revenge of the Sith and in, on the Clone Wars before, and this droid is driving him around and sort of like really pleased with his acceptance in the amnesty program, and he's taking him to the uh, you know, the amnesty ha- uh, apartment complex, you know, the amnesty housing. Now, Brian, did you notice anything familiar about this droid? Uh, Not off the top of my head, no. Oh, well, it just so happens, and I think this is intentional, uh, that he greatly resembles the original concept art that Ralph McQuarrie designed for C-3PO. Oh, okay. I mean, all the droids just kind of like look like those. There was a couple of others in previous episodes that have done that too. Um. Yeah, because I, I went and looked at the concept art because it seemed very familiar, and he has that the same uh, ridge in the middle of his forehead and like the certain accents on on the face, and it's not exactly the same, but there there are some clear features, and I, I feel like that this was an intentional thing where they drew from Ralph McQuarrie's concept art for three PO. Oh, absolutely. Um, and once he he talks to Pershing, he starts giving him like travel advice, telling him to go visit the Sky Dome Botanical Gardens, which were something that were plucked out of the Legends continuity or the extinct animals museum where he was particularly taken with an animal from Malastare, which was the home of the Dugs, and uh, where they actually got the Zillow Beast. And if you're paying attention to the Bad Batch, um, the Bad Batch is actually um, sort of picking up with all of this cloning technology. They feel much more related than I think people are giving it credit for. And the Zillow Beast from Clone Wars made an appearance, and they are working to clone that to weaponize that technology with that same group that Dr. Pershing worked with. So Pershing would be very familiar with the extinct species of Malastare. Uh, like the droid mentions. And I thought it was so funny that the droid just gets so carried away talking about it with his head not even looking at the road that they arrive at the destination. He's like, oh, you're here, like mid-sentence. So 
Dr. Pershing gets out and enters this like very brutalist looking apartment complex that is the amnesty housing. But before he can get to his apartment, uh, there's a group of uh, other amnesty receivers there having a drink in the courtyard and they invite him over to have a drink with them. And they, as they introduce themselves, we get to the last one and it is Aaliyah Kane, whose name we don't know yet, but she was the communications officer in Moff Gideon's cruiser. And everyone here talks about Moff Gideon as though like, oof, like Moff Gideon is sort of his name is spoken of the same way you might hear someone go like, oh, you worked for 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 Goebbels or something. Yeah. You know what yeah, I mean? Exactly. Like, <laughs> it's it's not pleasant, um, but they all are are sort of dedicated to this idea that they can find some redemption and uh, that they can you know, move on and actually be benefit beneficial to the galaxy and the new Republic. Um, one of the things that I found so interesting and as a key to this episode and unlocking a lot of the stuff we'll probably talk about in speculation is they talk when they mention about Moff Gideon, they talk about how there's rumors that he escaped on his way to the war tribunal. And another one of the guys buys right into a conspiracy theory where he goes, no, no, no that was just a cover story. They put him in a mind flare. Um, but I think, I think we'll, we'll, we'll find that he is definitely still pulling some strings. Yes, I think so. Um, another moment that I think was really good here, and I'm, I'm curious about your perspective on this and whether it's a little too on the nose or worked really well for you was them sort of all marveling agog at the idea, like there's more of us than I thought there would be. And one of them goes, yeah, that's that's not the how the Empire would have done it. And they're like, no, not at all. Because you get the idea the Empire would have killed all these people. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but I thought that was actually a really poignant moment that, that these folks are actually sitting there marveling that they're getting a second chance at life because the Empire absolutely would have not done that. Yeah, and I think that that kind of uh, works hand in hand with, you know, what we saw earlier is that for you know, for the these the rich people, you know, they don't they don't see a difference between them. But here, these people who you're know, like are on the ground floor and like have are, are have now worked for both the Empire and the Republic, they see you know the difference in like how there's a much more heinous, undeniably evil approach that the Empire has, whereas the New Public, even though as we come to see, certainly has their flaws and is going about things you know in a, in a way that isn't necessarily uh, the best uh, path you know f- future in the aftermath of the Empire. They're still doing things at least, you know, better than what the Empire would have done. Yeah. Yeah. So they start reminiscing about things they miss from the Empire and Pershing's like, no, no I'm glad the Empire's gone. And one of them, uh, one of them's like, no, 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 not like that. Empire, yeah, yeah. good riddance. Yeah, like, no, <laughs> yeah. no, no, we're not we're not trying to goad you into saying great things about the Empire. Um, but the thing that Dr. Pershing realizes he misses are the yellow travel biscuits that they used to get on Imperial in Imperial ration packs. And they have their drink and things sort of go on this way. And he goes back to his apartment and he's listening to essentially a podcast about Coruscant. Um, when there's a, a, a ring at his doorbell 
and he opens his door and can't find who whoever was there and looks down at his feet and there's a little imperial box full of yellow travel biscuits um and he's really you know sort of grateful about this but doesn't know where they came from then uh it cuts to an office building uh very much like the office building we saw in andor that uh our, our our favorite incel works at <laughs> um and this is where this is where dr pershing is working spending his time being productive and uh his supervisor walks by wishing him a happy bendu day which what is uh, bendu this is... day brian so <laughs> there's two days that get referenced in in this episode, the Bendu Day, which is sort of the equivalent of the last day of the week, and Tong's Day, which is the third day of the week in Star Wars. And all of this comes from a pretty obscure place. I think it's something that internally in Star Wars they sort of use uh, or had used. But in, from 2014 to 2016, a uh, licensing company called Diagostini uh, put out a series of magazines that were accompanied by... Um, replica model kits from inside the Millennium Falcon that you could buy that were like one-to-one size. And these magazines came with it. And these magazines had information in them that is considered canon. And there were literally a hundred of these sets that were released uh, in that time. And one of the issues got into the days of the week. And we found that uh, timekeeping in Star Wars, the uh, Coruscant, is based on a five day a week cycle. So, uh, you know, imagine a week with no weekends and Bendu day is the Friday and Tong's day is sort of the, the hump day in the middle of the, 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 the third day. Bendu day is named after the Bendu monks that were the precursor to the Jedi Knights on Coruscant. And uh, Bendu, you'll also recognize as the, the sort of, mystical character that tom baker voiced on star wars rebels um and there's probably some relation to the bendu and the bendu monks but that hasn't ever been explored in the canon yet i was just surprised to hear like them actually referencing the specific days of the week in star wars because on some level it feels a little silly yeah but they did it and so that's bendu day Especially since the the Tongs Day reference is the equivalent of like uh you know office space and and Mondays. <laughs> yeah, no, it it and and I would have I would have been frustrated by that if it was just the first time they used it, but bringing it back the second time, I was like, okay, I can live with this. <laughs> um, you, you know what's interesting is, uh, I I'm I I like the idea of like there being some kind of tie to like the name of Bendu Day being tied to Bendu, that, that character, um, because that would like kind of tie into the same way that like we named our days of the week and the origins of like why those days are actually named that like go all the way back to, uh, you or know, middle, middle, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, I think that that's, that's a pretty astute, uh, point in that Bendu is very, as much a God in that universe as Thor or Odin would be in ours. Yeah. That's a nice touch. So we learn through his job that through the little uh, data disks, like just like the ones that uh, Princess Leia received with the plans of the Death Star on it, 
um, that he's inventorying all the crap that the New Republic is decommissioning from the Imperials. And that's pretty much the busy work he's he's involved with. And this whole thing feels very much like Brazil, the yeah. Terry Gilliam movie. And I'm sure, sure we'll talk more about Brazil as we get deeper into this subplot. But that that scene ends and we cut to Monument Plaza and there's a really jaunty version of John Williams's March of the Resistance playing. Yeah. It took Which me a second seemed... to place it, and I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> yeah, same. Like, I, I rewound it a couple times, and my wife is like, oh, it's like the lullaby. Like, there's, I don't know if anybody's listened to, or if anybody's got kids, there's uh, a lullaby version of a whole bunch of the tracks, uh, and it works great for getting kids to sleep. And uh, she's like, oh, it sounds just like the lullaby song of one of the ones that we we let Valkyrie listen to and she pulled them up and we listened to two or three of them until we figured out like, yes, totally. It's March of the resistance exactly that way. And then we resumed the episode. <laughs> um, Monument Plaza is somewhere we've seen before. Monument Plaza made its live action debut in return of the Jedi, actually in the special edition of return of the Jedi. Um, this is the site of the celebration that ended the empire uh, at the end of Return of the Jedi, where they toppled that statue of the Emperor. Uh, but it's also the site of a great tragedy where uh, Chuck Wendig's book Aftermath sort of showed us that uh, or reminded us that the Empire was still in control on Coruscant for another year after the Battle of Endor. And they put that riot down pretty aggressively. Uh, so Monument Plaza has a lot of that vibe to it. But there's, you know, a guy doing magic shows and, and uh, you know, pulling what looks like a tiny Dilophosaurus out of a hat. Um, there's in a, like in a way it feels like um, like a low rent version of, of Disneyland, almost like a like a like a carnival that's or a, a state fair that's happening here in, in the square. Yeah. And and Dr. Pershing and, and uh, Elia Kane are eating these glow popsicles, which if they can figure out how to do that, I would not be surprised if they end up on Batu at some point. Yeah, for sure. Um, they make small talk and she reveals that she was trained at the Imperial Academy and it took her some time to get back to Coruscant. Um, the Imperial Academy is really interesting. It's got a pretty long history. If you're interested in reading uh, specific details about what the Imperial Academy on Coruscant is like, I would recommend Claudia Gray's book, Lost Stars. Um, but other luminaries that we've known across the Star Wars universe have been trained at that academy as well. Thrawn spent three months there uh, when he came over from the Chiss Ascendancy and was introduced into the Imperial ecosystem. And the Watson to his homes, Eli Vanto was trained there as well, and that's where they met. Uh, Agent Callus was a, a, a very promising student that came out of there and then joined the ISB from the ranks of the Imperial Academy. And he ended up uh, on Star Wars Rebels, uh, actually defecting from the ISB to the Rebel Alliance. Um, and then obviously Thane Carell and Sienna Ree from Lost Stars were graduates of that Academy. And um, Princess Leia even showed up to one of their prom sort of dances. Um, so there's a lot of history there. And Eli Kane basically is saying like, yeah, I went to the galactic equivalent of West Point here on Coruscant. There you go. 
Um, but they talk about like the need to do real good and how that's that's really important. And she sort of starts to raise the idea of him continuing his research, but he's hesitant about it. Um, but she kind of pushes him and says, you know, following orders blindly is how we got in this mess in the first place. But they're pretty quickly distracted by the peak of Umate, which is the top of the highest mountain on Coruscant, which is the only place where you can actually touch the actual surface. Um, which makes the physics of Coruscant, or at least the weather, weather patterns of Coruscant, seem really ridiculous. Like, if you're at the top of a mountain, if you're at that high of an elevation on a platform like that, I imagine it would be kind of cold year round. Though, to be fair, considering the fact that the entire planet is basically a city, I am sure that they have technology all over the planet to probably help them relegate the weather and make it so that they don't have to deal with those kinds of issues. That's fair enough. That's fair enough. Um, but she actually goads him into touching the mountain and then a droid shows up and spooks him. And I thought this was an interesting bit of foreshadowing that she can sort of goad him into doing just about anything, even though it's against his personality. Yeah. Now I have a question. Did you, did you trust, uh, Eliah Kane up, up to this point during, during this point, or were, were you always suspicious of her from the beginning? Um, I, I was trying to keep an open mind about letting it go both ways. I could f- I could see where the narrative would have been valid in either direction and was trying to figure out which direction it was leading me in because I felt like they were actually playing with us pretty fair about whether she was on the level or whether she was she had an ulterior motive like they played it pretty 50 50. Yeah, I think they and like if, you know, they did a pretty good job of of humanizing her and doing things like this, like the uh, doing the playful goading to convince him to, to touch the mountain, you know, just to to have him get caught by the security droid, and just the way they're walking around and like eating these popsicles uh, and and that kind of thing. Like they really did did work to make you feel like you maybe you could trust her, even though you probably shouldn't. And I love how she like after he scares she, uh, the droid scares him. She like claps him on the back and is like, come on, let me buy you a photon fizzle. Yeah, <laughs> like it's really I don't know. I really like all this weird Star Wars like like what? I don't know. Is that a cotton candy? Is that what is that? I don't know. I don't care. It sounds fun. Yeah. Bring it to Galaxy's Edge. <laughs> yeah. So after this scene, we cut to a droid psychologist um, and this feels a little bit like the scenes in uh, Bucky and Captain America, uh, Captain America or Cap- Falcon in the Winter Soldier, where they have to sit down with their sort of court court appointed psychologist. Yeah. And uh, it asks the it asks them a whole bunch of banal questions and doesn't dig deeper into any of them at all. Um, about like, do you feel bad about your coworkers? Do you feel bad about this? It almost felt a little bit like the um, the Jesus confessionals in THX eleven thirty eight, but like funnier. <laughs> yeah. Um, and he's like, no, no, no. Wait, can I ask you a question? And the droid actually responds with proceed, which I think is something that the Jesus confessional in THX eleven thirty eight says as well. And he's like would it be okay for me to continue my research just recreationally? And the droid's just like, according to your file, you were into genetic uh, engineering and cloning. And all of that's prohibited by the Coruscant Accords. Sorry. 
and he's miffed about this. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, like the Coruscant Accords aren't something specifically we've heard of before. Um, we've had the Galactic Concordance and the Imperial Instrument of Surrender, which were the two documents that got signed by Masameda um, around the time of the Battle of Jakku that ended the war. Um, but we haven't heard about the, the Coruscant Accords yet. But this is this is interesting. Now we know it's in paragraph 13, section B. Exactly. And we, I'm sure Wikipedia and uh, dedicated Star Wars fans will start to build out all of the, the documents and notes that make up the Coruscant Accords. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It'll be very, very interesting reading, I'm sure. <laughs> What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. So, talking, hanging out with Aaliyah Kane, Dr. Pershing is sort of crestfallen by this. Like, he just wants to help. And she raises the idea, like, well, why don't we just get you a mobile lab? Can you do that? Can you get a mobile lab and just sort of work on some of it? And he's like, because he feels like if he just showed the New Republic what he was working on, they would get that it's not harmful and they'd be okay with him doing it. And she just kind of continues pushing him and says, like, we can go do it. Like, we can go get the mobile lab. No problem. We'll have to leave the perimeter, but it'll be fine. He's like, no, no, I think that's too much of a risk. Um, We can't do that. And she's like, OK, just sleep on it because she's she's got him on a hook. Right. And yeah. she's reeling him in. Um, So then we cut back to Dr. Pershing at work the next day. And he realizes that some of the technology that he's scheduling for destruction is stuff that would really help the New Republic. It's perfectly good technology. It could help save lives, but they're scheduling it for destruction anyway. Um, and his supervisor is like, eh, I don't know that you can put in a request to not get that decommissioned. Like no one from the amnesty program's ever done that. I'd have to check, but you'd need to get a, a C-1023 past and and i'm just not sure that's possible and i'll be honest uh we're behind because we're not only are we decommissioning all of this stuff we're decommissioning the alliance fleet too like we're just behind on all this like you're doing good work for the alliance but like or for the Rebe the new republic but just keep doing what you're doing and stop asking questions um and so I th there's two interesting points there one i think this is way more brazil Right. Where it's like, no, you'd have to fill out a 24 stroke, you know, 24, six stroke B or whatever. Yeah. Or 24 B stroke six. And uh, the other thing is the idea of decommissioning the Alliance fleet. Yeah. What's that about? So um, in the aftermath books, one of the big things that Mon Mothma wanted to do to sort of show the galaxy that the New Republic was going to differ from the Empire and that the Empire sort of ruled the, the barrel of the gun of their Navy. And so she said, as soon as the Imperial warlords have sort of pulled back enough, we're going to reduce the fleet, the size of the Alliance fleet to 10% of its former size. We're going to decommission the rest of it. And then that fleet is only going to be used to train local militias in the varying sectors. So you'll be able to have your own fleets and your own 
standing armies to deal with your own problems that are controlled by you. And you're not going to have to live under the oppressive thumb of the new Republic. We're going to be truly different. And this was actually one of the big breaks that Leia Organa had with Mon Mothma. Leia Organa thought this idea was ridiculous. And she kept sounding the alarm about this until she ended up breaking away and creating the resistance to fight the increasing threat of the first order that the, uh, Chancellor at the time, Villacham, later uh, after Mon Mothma, still refused to sort of see and ignore uh, and and this political ideal that we're peaceful, we don't have this huge standing navy, um, really took root uh, in the popular uh, politics of the time. So that Military Dearmament Act got signed sometime after the Battle of Jakku after most of the imperial warlords had been dealt with or left or the remnants of the empire had largely gone to the unknown regions which we now know was to start the first order so this is a really interesting tie to help on screen um audiences understand why the political situation at the beginning of the force awakens was the way it was which is something that jj abrams didn't do and put next to no thought in Or J.J. Abrams. Well, it's funny, like how you've got these stories where, like, J.J. Abrams just wanted to do the stuff he wanted to do and did it, and yeah. then you have you had these writers have to figure out how to go back and reconfigure everything. So J.J. Abrams was like, "I want to blow up Coruscant." They're like, uh, "We probably shouldn't." Here's like ten reasons why we shouldn't. So, okay, just make it a different plan, but make it look like Coruscant. So then you had all the writers going like, well, why is how, why is this the capital now? How does that work? So you had like Chuck Wendig doing the rotating capital thing with Mon Mothma and Chandrilla in the Aftermath books. And then Bloodline was the book that Claudia Gray wrote from Ryan Johnson's notes for The Last Jedi for Ryan Johnson to make sense of the whole like Leia created the resistance because the Republic was ignoring her saying the First Order was a threat. And Bloodline really solidified all of that in really interesting ways. So you've got J.J. Abrams making a bunch of decisions and then all of the writers going like, okay, how do we make that make sense? And and this throwaway line in The Mandalorian is another one of those great ties to help make sense of what J.J. Abrams did. How do you feel about this uh, as, you know as a fan like is it something that is frustrating for you you're you're deep in star wars lore all the time like uh, what's your perspective on this so my thing is is like there are definitely things that i'll see in star wars that don't make sense or don't click with me immediately and then i'll spin stories in my head to go like how could that fit in star wars and more often than not it's very similar to what they end up coming up with i remember um when we learned that Ray's dad was a clone of Palpatine uh, or that he was Palpatine's son, like in the movie, they didn't even really say that Ray's father was a clone of Palpatine. Right. Yeah. Um, it was me going like, there's no way there. Like in the video games, they're told like Darth Vader can't run. Right. Like there's no way they're going to let Palpatine fuck. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like, Okay, so it's probably a clone. He was probably doing some of this stuff with the dark cloning and the science and everything. And maybe that's he's he's just this 
powerless clone of Palpatine who tried to carve out a life for himself. And then that's what ended up happening, right? Like they retconned that to make sense because Abrams didn't actually pay attention to it or actually throw any thought into it. Personally, as like a writer and a Star Wars fan, I think it's fun to have curveballs thrown at me like that and have me try to make sense of them and see how the other creatives make sense of them because they're almost always satisfying. Um, I think uh, the book that, that Adam Christopher wrote shadows of the Sith uh, does that for all of the weird questions that rise of Skywalker raised, right? Like why did, how did Lando actually lose his daughter? Like, what does that actually mean? Or like Ray's parents and Ochi of Bestoon and like, how does that work? And why is Luke involved? Like, he made masterful sense of all of that in a really entertaining book. So for me, as someone who's going to consume everything in Star Wars, it doesn't bother me. I can yeah. see where it might be frustrating to people who aren't going to do that. In fact, I was talking to my son about this this morning. I asked him if he watched this episode and he's he's 20 and he's like, yeah, yeah, I did. Uh who attacked Bo-Katan? And I was like, oh, I think that's Moff Gideon. He's got his fingerprints all over this. And and uh, he's like, I don't even remember where Moff Gideon was after the end of the last season. And I was like, oh, you remember they dropped that hint in episode one where they said that he was heading to the war tribunal. And then at the table here, these guys, when they were drinking, were talking about how he might have escaped. And so here's how that worked. But I also think maybe there's something bigger going on. He's like, this is why they have you write that stuff, isn't it? Because I can't keep all that in my head. Yeah. See, for me, I'm I'm a, uh, I don't I don't consider myself a casual Star Wars fan, but I'm not as invested in every you know facet of Star Wars media as you are. You know, I, I haven't read a lot of the books. I've I've read some of the comics, play the video games every now and then. I mostly just stick to the movies and TV shows, uh, and I hear you know tangential stuff and understand things just because of my my job and my interest in Star Wars. And for me, while I do like the idea of there being room to like flesh out details and explain things that maybe don't require in-depth explanation stuff like that in the movies and, and tv shows my my frustration with the sequel trilogy comes from jj abrams disregard for that and forcing those other writers to do things and explain things that maybe shouldn't have had to be explained and i wish that there was more care paid to star wars mythology setting those things up um, so that those things weren't required to have things make sense. And I think that that's where the biggest stumble of the sequel trilogy is for me, is that they, there should have been somebody who was just as invested as Kevin Feige is in the Marvel Cinematic Universe and everything that's happening in it in order to make sense, as opposed to just flying by the seat of your pants, letting Abrams do whatever he wants to do, letting Ryan Johnson do whatever he wants to do, and then letting Abrams undo some of that just so he can do the things that he wants to do uh, again. So I, I that that's where my frustration comes in. No, I think that's absolutely part of my frustration. I think J.J. Abrams would have made better movies had he listened to the story group a little bit more closely. Yeah, for sure. Um, and Ryan Johnson did right. Like Ryan Johnson said, okay, like how do I, how do I put, how do I put lipstick on this pig? And that's why, you know, bloodline was able to come out between that time between last Jedi and force awakens yeah. because Ryan Johnson was like, okay, how does this all make sense? How can it work? Here's how all of this stuff with Leia makes sense in my head. And this is the backstory I need for my stuff to make sense here. Go give this to the writers. And then he let Claudia Gray do that, where he actually had 
made an acknowledgement of the other creatives in the Star Wars universe and gave them stuff that they needed. It was, I think he, uh, I think he's much better for Star Wars than J.J. Abrams. For sure. All right, let's get back to Mandalorian. Okay. Um, So finally, uh, after this scene at work, he goes back to the psychology droid who pretty much uh, could, you know, it demoralizes him enough to actually for him to go back to Kane and say like, okay, fine, we're going to go. We're going to do it. And she says, okay, let's do it tomorrow night. And it cuts to this shot in his apartment. That's like super noir Venetian blinds lighting. Uh, And he goes and has this taxi driver moment at the mirror where he's like, he says, uh, you're helping the new Republic. You're doing the right thing. Uh, very much the same, you know, bucking himself up the same way Travis Bickle might. Yeah. Um, which I found, I found that hilarious. Like this guy who shouldn't be like Travis Bickle was, was doing that to go out and commit violence and (laughs) watching someone who's sort of so gaslit culturally that he shouldn't be doing the right thing. Um, do this in the mirror was really funny to me. Yeah. So, uh, the two of them go to a transport station uh, where they they're he's very nervous, but she's cool as, you know, the surface of Hoth. And uh, they they jump the turnstiles to, you know, without a ticket to get onto the, the public transit, um, which looks a lot like the shuttle that Padme and Anakin take in Attack of the Clones to the refugee ship. Um, and there they, they sort of encounter this giant creature uh, who looks like a mix of a couple of different aliens in the the sequel trilogy. And he's kind of giving them a sour look and uh, Kane sort of nods to him and goes, Tong's days, am I right? <laughs> uh, like she's a motivational poster with Cat lamenting Mondays. <laughs> and uh, so they start, um, you know, getting more and more nervous and uh, he asks her like, so you've done this before. And she's like, where do you think I got your, you know, yellow travel biscuits. And then they notice that there are droids that are taking tickets. And uh, it feels a little bit like last crusade that, that nervousness, that nervous energy where it's like, Oh, I I don't have tickets. What are they going to do with my, I, what am I going to do here? And they start, traveling to the back of the train until there's no train left and she convinces him to jump from the end as they're approaching the station so as the the train or the shuttle is slowing down near the station they jump right off the back um and it shows again this disregard for railings that the empire has (laughs) um you know you think like if if this were a real train in or a real shuttle in you know, modern day United States, a, there would be no way to open that last door that didn't have a a train behind it. And even if there was, there would be railing all the way around. So you'd have to at least like have effort to get over the side of it rather than just, uh, you know, an empty plank. So they decide they're heading to, she actually takes them to the Imperial disposal yards where a, um, Star Destroyer is being decommissioned 
It's interesting that this is the same location or a very similar location that was used in Bad Batch in their mid-season two-parter, where the Bad Batch infiltrated a Star Destroyer that was being retrofitted in the same facilities. Um, But this is where these Star Destroyers are being decommissioned, and they have their talk as they wind their way through the Star Destroyer, and she they apologize to each other for not introducing each other on Moff Gideon's ship because they've grown quite a friendship here. And uh, they introduce themselves by name as opposed to the numbers they've been given in the amnesty program. And I'm wondering what, what do you, what do you make of them having those, those numbers in the amnesty program? Part of me wonders if it's a way for them to not be linked to their past identity so that nobody else judges anybody for the things they might've heard that certain sects of the Imperial army did, you know, obviously there are probably certain areas that were responsible for more heinous things than others. So maybe it's just a way, another way of giving them a fresh start as opposed to being linked to their, their past transgressions. So they find the uh, science bay of this star destroyer and he starts packing up a bag it's got everything he needs but they start hearing weird noises and they start running through the star destroyer and back out into the industrial yards hoping that they could make it back to the amnesty housing without any trouble but that's when a spotlight hits them and a bunch of new republic police who look they look like the uh, Alderanian troops that were on the Tanavi Four in A New mm-hmm. Hope and in Rogue One, but dressed in New Republic blue, uh, which makes them look a little bit like Canto Bite police, but less fancy. Yeah, that's true. Um, they show up to arrest him, and she comes, and uh, Kane comes and sort of takes the lab equipment from him, and they thank her for this and they knock him out and this turns out to have been a ruse Uh, she claims that she was working for the amnesty program and that he was breaking all of his programming and she did everything she could to notify them and make sure that they knew where to be to pick him up which is a little frustrating a little bit I mean, just a little bit (laughs) not as frustrating as what happens next um pershing wakes up unbeknownst to him and there's a mon calmari doctor from the new republic standing over him explaining to him that uh he's going to be put into a uh, 602 mitigator uh and he's like no no no, this isn't this is a mind flare he's like nope this is a, a piece of healing equipment it's based on similar technology it's not a mind flare but it's it's similar <laughs> um And they're going to use it on him uh, to sort of remove some of that Imperial programming. And mind flayers have been known to like erase people's minds completely. But this is something. um, This is something that, uh, you know, they've used in the healing process with people. And the Moncal even says like, yeah, I've it's been used on me, my, you know, and it was quite refreshing to me. And uh, 
it all has this feeling of Brazil. Like if you remember the end of Brazil where Sam Lowry, Jonathan Price's character is doing everything he can to do everything for the good of humanity. And it feels like the system is just bucking against him because the good of humanity is not what he's supposed to be doing. And he's finally caught and he's taken to this torture chamber. And the person who's supposed to be torturing him is his buddy played by Michael Palin. Um, and that's the end for Jonathan Price's character. Like he gets his lobotomy, you know, right? Like he he does not survive this. But it seems like this is going to be a nicer process until we realize that Elia Kane is watching from the next room and convinces the Twi'lek technician there that she'd like to watch. You know, he's still a friend and she'd like to watch. And the Twi'lek leaves her unattended in the room and she turns, you know, like like the six-fingered man or like Prince Humperdinck in the six-fingered man's contraption turns it up to 50. It's, it's not bad. good news. It's not good news. No. Yeah. Let's uh let's not neglect to mention uh the nice uh reference to one of the most famous and memeable Star Wars lines by having Dr. Pershing say that that this was a trap to a Mon Calamari. <laughs> Yeah, no, I mean, they really turned the tables on that one. Yeah. But it was, it, it was a trap. It was like, he was not like, I feel for Pershing in this instance. Oh, for sure. Because it's this, it's this, she's manipulating this bureaucracy against him in ways that are evil. In ways that are really evil. It's not good. So, moving on. Um... And we'll talk more about why she did this in the speculation section. But we've yeah, got okay. one little bit left, the bookend scene, where we cut back to the desert planet that was the first shot of episode one of this season. And we're at the the Mandalorian covert. And he tells, uh, Din Djarin tells Bo-Katan that he, they're hiding here as his guest. And, and she's there as his guest, rather. But they show up. And Paz Vizsla doesn't want to let him in. He doesn't believe them. He says that Mandalore is cursed and both of them are apostates. And Din Djarin fights back and says, these are these, you know, Mandalore's not cursed. These were lies designed to divide us. And I have proof. And skeptical Paz Vizsla says fine and lets them in. And the armorer takes the vial of water uh, from Din and tests it and says, no, he has been redeemed. And Bo-Katan there has also been redeemed since she hasn't taken her helmet off since she bathed in the waters as well. So as long as she adheres to their rules while she's there, she's welcome to be a part of them and is now one of the children of the Watch. And uh, she can leave whenever she wishes, but she needs to, to follow their rules in the meantime. And something's clearly weighing on her and she casts her glance back to the back of the room and there is a sculpture of a mythosaur skull staring at her and it cuts back to her reaction even through the mask and it's sort of weighing heavy on what her next move is going to be and then we cut to black oh boy. i want to before we get into speculation i want to say uh one of the interesting things about this episode is that it was directed by lee isaac chung uh, who directed Minari, um, which got him Oscar nominations for Best Director and Best Original Screenplay uh, a couple years ago as well. And uh, it's interesting that in order for them to have brought him on to set him up for this episode, he probably would have had to have been working on it at the height of that uh, 
cachet at the Academy Awards. And it's interesting to think that, uh, you know, Star Wars is attracting that that Oscar caliber talent at every level. Yeah, absolutely. So what do you think is going to happen next, Brad? Uh, Well, gosh, I mean, I I don't necessarily know what's going to happen uh, next, but I think that um there this episode raises a lot of interesting questions i think that's probably like where the bulk of our our speculation really lies so let's let's go back and start off with um what what do you think bo katan stands to gain from not telling din about seeing the mythosaur like what what's the point of keeping that secret if she if she doesn't think that she you know is was seeing things i think one of the things is that she's not sure i i honestly think that there's this lack of surety and what she should do with that knowledge she knows that she can drop that that like a bomb at some point yeah but she's not sure what she can do with it yet and until she's confident about what she can do with it or should she do with it i don't think she's going to tell anybody um but that leaves bo katan as this really interesting wild card because she has everything she needs to unite the mandalorian people if she works with din He's yeah. got the dark saber. She's got the mythosaur. Together, they could unite their people. And last episode, she talked a lot about how this petty infighting among all their different sects is what cost them their planet in the first place. So maybe she's grown. Maybe she's learned her lesson. Or maybe she hasn't. And maybe she's just waiting to use the mythosaur until she gets the dark saber back from Din. Yeah, that's a, what I'm wondering is do, do you think she has it in her to? you know, overcome these differences and lead everybody under a new banner? Or is she just biding her time until she can get what she needs in order to rid herself of the Mandalorian sect that she, you know, doesn't buy into? You know, I I think that's what I want for for her. I want her to be able to unite them because I like Bo-Katan as a character and Katie Sackhoff makes her very likable. But I'm also worried that she's going to make that bad choice because drama is nothing but like watching really fascinating train wrecks of bad choices. Yeah, absolutely. Um, sticking with the Bo-Katan train of thought, uh, since we don't uh, aren't given necessarily a full confirmation of who sent the uh, Tie Fighter fleet after her, do you, you mentioned that you think it's Moff Gideon? But do you think that there's still somebody above Moff Gideon? Um, that we haven't fully uh, met in the Mandalorian. And I'm hinting at maybe that it's somebody that we still know is out there in the star Wars universe. I think so. I think that that's a very distinct possibility, especially when you take all the hints and references around that. Um, Just to be clear, we're, we're talking about grand Admiral. Thrawn. Thrawn. Yeah. yeah. Thrawn um, Moff Gideon. If he escaped, like before he got captured, right? All he had was a cruiser and his death troopers, right? Which made him a formidable foe, right? Like he had a garrison at Navarro. He had the death troopers and he had his cruiser. He didn't even have a full star destroyer, right? So if he only recently escaped from new Republic custody, where's he going to get three squadrons of tie interceptors and a squadron of tie bombers and I think the motive is there. I think he's the only character with a motive that makes sense to have those resources and to attack Bo-Katan specifically. Yeah. Uh, he was messing with her with the Darksaber 
she was there at the site of his last like failure where he got arrested. So uh, it was all Mandalorians essentially. And him trying to take that out on them makes a lot of sense, right? Like, well, I've already destroyed their planet. Now I've got to go kill these cockroaches on all of their moons as well. Yeah. Um, but where is he going to get these resources? And that's where I think Thrawn is a really compelling answer. Um, Thrawn, like you said, is still out there, right? He's out there in um, the unknown regions of space, and he has his complement of Star Destroyers that had been taken from Lothal to the unknown regions with him, uh, thanks to the Pergils and thanks to Ezra Bridger. And once they get to the unknown regions, like Ezra Bridger's still just one kid in in an entire fleet of Star Destroyers commanded by Grand Admiral Thrawn. Like, that's still probably bad news for Ezra, and Ezra very much thinks he's sacrificing his life. So maybe Ezra didn't end up making it. Who knows? Or maybe Thrawn made his life very bad. But there's a piece of lore that could give Thrawn even more resources if he's working with someone like Moff Gideon uh, to come back, right? And that's the Katana fleet. The Katana fleet in the old Legends universe was this fleet of old dreadnoughts that the old Republic had built as a show of like force in the days before the, the transition of the Empire. And they had like this this virus attack their nav computers and they just misjumped. And these this like fleet of 200 warships just disappeared overnight. And Thrawn assembled all the clues to go get that fleet back. And even though he was only able to get something like eight or ten ships, eight or ten warships in the hands of somebody like Grand Admiral Thrawn is huge. Um, so he's got his fleet that he could have refurbished that he took from Lothal and the Pergils, and he could have this Katana fleet, and that would give him more than ample reason to entrust someone like Moff Gideon, who he might have had some dealings with, with destabilizing the galaxy. And yeah. part of that destabilization of the New Republic could very well fit into Thrawn's plans by eliminating the Mandalorians, who were a thorn in his side in Rebels before the end of that. Uh, so it, it it makes a lot of sense that Thrawn could be involved and that Moff Gideon could be answering to him now. All right, cool. So we think Thrawn is out there. And I feel like... This, I mean, and this probably makes even more sense too when you consider the fact that uh, it's the Ahsoka series has teased that it feels like it's going to focus on uh, Ahsoka and Sabine's quest to find Ezra Bridger. Uh, and considering Ezra's, you know, ties to Thrawn and, and all that from everything, it would make sense for them to bring Thrawn uh, into live action, whether or not it's in Mandalorian or if it's in Ahsoka, and then all of this inevitably probably ties together into something you know much bigger and i mean i got the impression that gideon was pulling the strings with kane too that 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 actually leads to sort of a bigger conspiracy right yeah that, well I, th I think the fact that we you, you talked about and we focused so much on mentioning uh elia kane's uh being at the imperial imperial academy and stuff like that which is where thrawn also was that it would stand to reason that maybe they they met at the academy and that she has her own ties to Thrawn. No, that's true too. Um, and I mean, here's more conspiracy theory, right? Like Mount Tantis, which is um, a place that is becoming increasingly important in the Bad Batch show, is where the cloning 
program that Dr. Pershing was involved in that led to things like Snoke and things like that was centered on. And we're seeing a lot of that in Bad Batch. But in the Legends timeline, Mount Tantus was an Imperial facility that Thrawn went to and cloned a crazy Jedi, Joris Sibioth, uh, to lure Luke Skywalker out with the not the 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 idea that there could be another Jedi master that he could learn from out there and using all of these tools with this fleet and the things that he had at his disposal, he became a very potent threat to the new Republic. So if Dr. Pershing worked in that program, um, Moff Gideon was definitely working in that program. So he could have had ties to Thrawn in that way as well. But Pershing knows about Tantus and he knows about all of the the cloning and that dark science that's going on that's going to eventually lead to Palpatine uh, and his return, right? So it makes sense for Thrawn and Gideon both to want to tie up that loose end. Yeah, that's true. So I don't know, like, I feel like Charlie Day staring at a wall of like yarn and <laughs> and bits where it's just like this bit from from uh, Bad Batch and like this bit of Legends and this and that. But I really think that we're leading to a huge, huge, like, like Thrawn is the Thanos of the Filoni Favreau cinematic television Star Wars universe. Do you think that this will likely lead to some kind of adaptation of the Thrawn trilogy. I get really excited thinking about that, but the technology for Mark Hamill, Harrison Ford and Carrie Fisher to reprise their roles has got to get a lot better because they're very central characters, but they could take the route where they're going to do a new trilogy or a new TV series or whatever, and focus on the other characters and just make them cameos. And that could be really exciting. Yeah, because I was going to say, if the, is there a way to do it where Luke and Leia and Han aren't necessarily so so prominent? Yeah, I, I mean, I think that there's probably ways to do that. And I think maybe the Mandalorians are the, the direction to take that, where this is what's going to bring the Mandalorians into the New Republic to help against that threat or something. Yeah. Who knows? Again, I say it a lot on this show, but like this is the universe that brought Darth Maul cut in half back from the dead. Like <laughs> anything is possible. Yeah, for sure. Uh, any any other speculation? I guess the still still the big question is, I guess what what happens next? Now now we're I think we're officially out of all of the footage that we saw in trailers and TV spots, and there there's nothing else now that we've seen that has been teased uh, for the rest of the season. Everything else we're going to see from here on out is stuff we have not seen at all yet. I think it's going to be explosive, whatever it is. Um, I think we're going to see maybe a, a skip in time some, right? So I want, I wouldn't be surprised if Din and Bo-Katan had been on at, at the covert for a while. Um, when we pick up with them next time. Um, and, but I think Moff Gideon, is definitely something we're going to see quick um, because he's been established as the big bad through the first two seasons. They're not going to hold him back too long. Yeah, I think that makes sense. Um, anything else that we didn't, that we didn't cover anything we need to speculate on or, or I don't know. On? There was so much that was there a really, lot. <laughs> there was, yeah, there was. And honestly, like, we, I think with the first episode, one of the things that we weren't necessarily super psyched about was A, how short it was, and B, 
how much table setting it was for future seasons. And even though there's a lot of table setting in this episode, I think the way it's done is a lot more compelling and the questions it raises are a lot more interesting as well. Yeah, no, I, but I, I don't think we could have gotten here without that episode. Yeah, for sure. Right like, this is this has been a really exciting roller coaster of a season so far. Yeah, I'm I'm very curious to see uh, how it how it turns out and what else we have uh, to go because they they got through all the stuff that I think we thought was going to take longer uh, very quickly and there are just so many uh, intriguing plots and and dangling threads for us to to see what's going to happen next. So, yeah, very cool. All right. Uh, well, that's going to do it for our Mandalorian recap episode for this week. Um, Slash Film Daily uh, is published every day, every weekday, bringing you the most exciting news from the world of movies and television, as well as deeper dives into the great features from SlashFilm.com. You can subscribe to Slash Film Daily on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Overcast, Spotify, and all the popular podcast apps. Please subscribe to our newsletter. Uh, send your feedback, questions, comments, and concerns to us at peter at SlashFilm.com. Please leave your name and general geographic location in case we mention the email on air. Please rate and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts. Uh, tell your friends and spread the word, and we will talk to you all again tomorrow. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, Place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager. Only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today.